Hey, how you doing? My name is Nolan. I'm from Past Gas by Donut Media. We are the world's number one automotive podcast. That's right. We're a storytelling show. This week, it's part three of our history of Mazda. Last week, we talked about the rotary engine and how they started a little bit of racing. This week, they got a lot more serious with it. They needed to make a big splash in the world stage. They decided to go to Le Mans over there in France and prove that they could keep up with the Europeans and the Americans. They did have a hard time with it, though. It's very intriguing. The rotary engine we talked about last week had some challenges. This is for the real Mazda heads and anybody who's curious about automotive history in general. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Pass gas. I'll see you there. The newest issue of the 1963 Carcraft magazine featured one of the most grotesque advertisements most had ever laid eyes on, a mangy cartoon rat. His bloodshot, bulging eyes, his oversized, panting mouth, stuffed to the limit with razor-sharp teeth and a wet, lolling tongue, and his hulking form stuffed into a fantasy hot rod. His name is Rat Fink, and he's introducing you and the world to The Rage in California. Rat Fink was artist Ed Big Daddy Roth's latest envelope-pushing creation that drove teenagers to car shows and parents up the wall. Get pitted. This fiend joined a legion of hot-rodding baddies Ed had introduced to the world via his airbrushed weirdo tees and custom car work the former of which was making the auto industry establishment just as crazy. Ed Roth changed the American culture by harnessing his passion for art and his disdain for the status quo and channeled it into groundbreaking car and apparel designs. But how did a young man with no automotive engineering training who almost flunked out of high school make such an impact on American car design? How did he stand out in Southern California during the height of custom car madness? And what type of legacy can a few crude creatures really leave behind? Today on Past Gas, it's the gnarly life and creations of hot rod iconoclast Ed Big Daddy Roth. Past Gas Podcast. It's about cars, it's not about ports. Dude, the beginning of that, you nailed. It was like gravelly. Yes. It's really descriptive. Mm-hmm. If I were listening to that in my car, I'd either. Turn it off or turn it up. <laughs> There's no in between, dude. Just like, oh, I need more of that, or I can't handle that. You don't even have to adjust the bass. No. You got the bass in there. It's nice, Thanks, man. If you turn it down, you're too old. Yeah, yeah. dude. I can yeah. hear your voice knocking Thank in my you. subs. Whoa. Thank you, man. Good thing I installed that box because now I just, uh. <laughs> just <laughs> yes. Welcome to Pass Gas, everybody. Uh, I almost did a DRS intro just now, but I re- realized I didn't have any sort of uh, funny thing to say. My name is Nolan Sykes. I'm joined by my co-hosts, James Pumphrey and Joe Weber. What's up, guys? Hey, y'all. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> We're workshopping new stuff. Yeah. yeah. I spit into my face. <laughs> Dude, some exciting uh, chart news. Not only are we the number one automotive podcast on Apple, we are now the number 60 comedy podcast, right. which is a way bigger pool to be a <laughs> top yeah. 60 fish in. It's uh, thanks to all our uh, subscribers and anyone who downloads it every week. Yeah, thank you guys. Sincerely. Yeah. And as much as I've always wanted to be car, I've 
wanted to be funny even longer. So <laughs> thank you guys for, I mean, even thinking we're funny, but top 60 funny? Smartless, we're coming for you. Right. You want to see a black and white documentary about us taking private jets on tour? Uh, let HBO know, or Max know. Hit up Max, be like, I got to see them past gas boys in sepia tone. Oh, yeah. Yeah. What do you guys know about the big green rat known as Rat Fink? I think Rat Fink is just a thing I've always recognized. Mm -hmm. it's, yeah. uh, it's like Mickey Mouse. It's like, but a, like twisty. It's like he's a so twisty, twisty mouse. dude. He's not a mouse. He's a rat. It's just, yeah, it's just like such an iconic image. Mm -hmm. You know, like one of those things like, I was like always attracted to like Rat Fink. I mean, <laughs> I should have known I liked cars yeah, yeah. even yeah. back then. I think we're due for kind of a Rat Fink resurgence at some point in the next five years or so. Uh -huh. The late 2000s, uh, you know, was very, people loved Von Dutch. Yeah. Uh -huh. People were into that kind of like aesthetic. Flash, flash tattoo, I think, yeah, aesthetic. I think it's coming back around at some point. Uh, I like to I, think that we're going to be on the This is my this. prediction. I think like Born and Raised or Market is going to license uh, Rat yes. Fink. I'm excited uh, for the Rat Fink resurgence. Me too. We're going to start finally slicking our hair yeah, back. Let's slick our hair back. We're going to be driving our 32 deuces to yeah. work. Pencil mustaches, white tees with cigarette packs rolled oh, yeah. up in the sleeves. Rolled up in them. I got a whole back tattoo of a real creepy ghoul driving a hot <laughs> rod right now. It's bleeding through my shirt. I'm going to have a, a comb that looks like a switchblade. Oh, wow. I'm going to have a switchblade that looks like a comb. Oh. <laughs> I'm trying to imagine that. Well, it just flips out, and then you're like, shh, shh, shh. you're like, I got a knife, and then it's really a comb. So it's the same thing. Well, a switch blade looks like a comb. It's like, oh, I think this is a little black comb, and then I'm like, oh, yeah. I'll whittle you away. You know who doesn't comb their hair? Who? Every, all of Every anybody. rat on earth? <laughs> Everybody. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Let's get into it. <laughs> Ed Big Daddy Roth was born to middle-class German Lutheran parents on March 4th. 1932 in Beverly Hills, California. Wow. But this was before the post-WW2 development uh, that put Beverly Hills on the map for luxury retail, fine dining, and multi-million dollar estates. Ed's father, Henry, was a cabinet maker who also chauffeured silent film star Mary Pickford in her limousine on the side. Yeah, I was actually looking at pictures of Los Angeles back during this time recently, and yeah. Beverly Hills was like farmland. Mm -hmm. There's a racetrack there for a while. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But like back in 1932, it wasn't like Rodeo Drive, it was farms. Mm -hmm. uh, think it was um, Rodeo Drive. Middle of, yeah. <laughs> think of uh, Ohio. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. I'm imagining it. Like Nebraska. A dusty, oh. dusty Nebraska. Not dusty dusty Nebraska. Nebraska. Iowa. Orange groves as far as the eye can see. Yeah. A lot different. Uh, in their German-speaking household, Ed and his younger brother, Gordon, learned woodworking from Henry. Their father was fairly strict and taught his boys to work with their hands as a means of keeping them out of trouble. Despite the inherent creativity in building as a craft, Henry lacked interest in Ed's creative curiosity likely because it was directed towards art and automobiles. Ed's mother, Marie Roth, a homemaker, was much more encouraging when it came to his artistic impulses. In school, Ed learned English and developed his drawing skills in between classes. And unsurprisingly, his favorite subjects were monsters and hot rods. Uh, yeah. Mine too. Yeah. What does uh, Tim Robinson say about monsters? I thought monsters were on Earth with us. <laughs> 
<laughs> when the pig comes into his house. <laughs> if you want to hear more about uh, I Think You Should Leave, you can listen to Joe's other podcast. Called I Think You Should Listen. I Think You Should Listen. It's Joe's Tim Robinson uh, theme podcast. <laughs> Ed's teen years aligned fortuitously with the post-WW2 popularization of Hot Rods. As we've discussed on the show many times, automotive production was halted during the war in favor of military vehicle production. Therefore, any American who didn't buy a new car in the year leading up to Pearl Harbor was driving a junker by the time the war ended. Today, a six- or seven-year-old car isn't that old. But in the 30s, the life expectancy of a car was about 6.75 years or fifty to 90,000 miles, depending on how well it was maintained. That's like that. Uh, the picture of the woman during the depression where she's got her kids, you know, mm -hmm. that woman's 30 in that picture. Oh, with Americans ravenous for new cars, automotive production exploded in 1946, leading households to dump their old vehicles on mass. Just as soldiers were returning from overseas with their new mechanical skills, they developed in the service. Many servicemen who were curious about hot rod culture could now scoop up one of those old 30s cars for dirt cheap and experiment with it easily. That's exactly what Ed did in 1946 when he turned 14, the legal driving age at the time. Oh, God, I'm so <laughs> glad we changed that. He became obsessive about his first car, a three-window 1932-33 Ford Coupe, and rebuilt it entirely. In 1949, Ed graduated from Bell High School, despite failing most of his classes, aside what? from auto shop and art. They're was like, life just so easy like, back Get then? him out of here. <laughs> yeah, life was easy. He graduated early by failing all of his classes. Hey, different time, man. However, his years spent tinkering with his coupe helped him to get into East Los Angeles College, where he studied engineering, mechanical drawing, and physics. Ed quickly grew bored, however as he hoped to learn more about automotive design. During the Korean War in 1951, Ed joined the Air Force. During that time, he went to bomb site school, learned how to make maps, and became an expert barber. The military took him to Colorado, Morocco, and finally South Carolina, where he was honorably discharged in 1955. After his military stint, Ed returned to Southern California, where he married his high school sweetheart, Sally. Soon, the two began having children, and eventually they'd have five boys, and Ed got back to his other true love, Hot Rod. I want to make some rats with you. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> Ed was in his early 20s when he took his first job at Sears, dressing mannequins and designing store displays for a dollar an hour, which is probably a lot back then. Eh, yeah, I mean, it's it's like probably not. 11 obviously. bucks today in today's world. Also, I would argue that the Air Force is probably his first job. Yeah, that's right? work. Dressing yeah. mannequins sounds <laughs> creepy. They ain't got no hair for me to style. <laughs> <laughs> Let's make sure the collar's right on this one. Let's button all the buttons. <laughs> button every single button. Around this time, he became friendly with Kenny Howard, the father of modern pinstriping, known best for his artist moniker, Von Dutch. Oh. Uh huh. Inspired by Howard's artistry and driven by his own creative hunger, Ed started a side hustle charging $4, about $45 today, a car for pinstriping and flame jobs. That's so cheap. 
which he painted in his driveway after work and on weekends. <laughs> Roth taught himself how to pinstripe, a process of hand-painting artistic lines on a car with sword-shaped brushes to enhance the curves of the surface in complementary colors. Yeah, the cool. Like sword-shaped meaning like the bristles on these brushes are super long. Mm-hmm. Yes. They're like, I think, cut in a way or something, and they're mm-hmm. like curved almost. It's not yeah. just like straight paintbrush it's really cool to watch and i'm glad that there's a select few people who are keeping this alive very because cool. it is one of the coolest when uh, they do it with crap. both hands like symmetrically yeah. is so impressive. that's a thing yeah Damn, it's such crazy. a cool part of car culture I, I i follow a few of these guys on instagram pinstripes are aesthetic embellishments but they also hide surface flaws like scratches hmm while Von Dutch popularized the style in the 1950s for cars and motorcycles, pinstriping was first seen in the 1800s on carriages, handguns, and rifles. Ooh, a gun with pinstriping on pinstripe it? A pinstripe gun. Whoa. Today, pinstriping can be done with thin vinyl tape rather than by hand, but in mid-century Los Angeles, these custom paint jobs were a rare and in-demand skill. That's cool, man. Ed advertised his home business by... Lettering, striping, and flaming his 1948 Ford sedan, which he called appropriately the Roth. Nice. nice. The popularity of his services led to his teaming up with fellow stripers Bud, the Baron Crozier, and Tom Kelly. No nickname required. <laughs> <laughs> they opened a shop called the Crazy Painters in 1957, and together the team attracted enough work that Ed was able to leave Sears and day jobs behind for good. Ed, you gotta stop painting the mannequins, man. <laughs> I'm making eyes. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy painters were known for adorning any and all vehicles with flames, scallops, pinstripes, and other custom paintwork. These designs made cars look fast, even when they were sitting still. That's cool, man. Like, I know what scallops means. Uh huh. But, but in, for a second, I was hungry. like, mm. I, for a second, I was like, just the, like the round, <laughs> like kind of wet. Before long, Ed started experimenting with airbrushing T-shirts and the types of cars and monsters he'd spent years doodling in school. His designs took off when he made logo shirts for his car club, the Maywood Drag Wagons. Nice. Each individual shirt had a wild caricature of the member it belonged to. Popularity of these designs led to his aptly named Weird Shirts being sold at the shop as well as his car craft magazine. Have you guys ever gotten like your caricature done on Venice Beach? Yeah. Yeah, they weren't nice. No. <laughs> they weren't very the, nice about it. The one that did me like went hard. And yeah. I was like, yeah, I, I do look this. like that, but God. My, <laughs> mine made me like ripped and I had a huge one. <laughs> <laughs> He gave me a real huge one, you know? He drew you naked? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I was like, man, I don't like tennis, but thanks for the huge one. <laughs> we'll be right back with more of this story, but first, a word from our sponsors. I, I found some bad news about Von Dutch. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. Uh, so probably at- didn't, That guy probably didn't believe in covid uh, Ed Boswell, this is a Cody. <laughs> Ed Boswell, founder of Von Dutch's clothing line in Los Angeles Magazine. Yeah, but this said, isn't Von Dutch the guy. No, but this is the re- original. This is the guy. artist guy. Okay. Von yeah. Dutch man. He said, quote, Von Dutch was an artistic Nazi, an aesthetic Nazi, and a racist. Ugh. But he was not a white power guy. He hated everyone too much to be one of those. 
What does that mean? Uh, <laughs> what? What a jerk. <laughs> so in Edge Star and Peyton Monsters, this was a cultural changing moment. Prior to Edge Designs, graphic t-shirts were relegated to servicemen as a part of their uniform, and no one had shirts customized to fit their interests and personalities. What? All I do is wear shirts with pics on them. I'm wearing one right now. There's a duck on it. Yeah. Sometimes I think, like, if I could go back to the 80s, I could have been, like, a rapper, you know? Oh, yeah. It's so easy. You could have been a professional skateboarder and a rapper. Yeah. And I think if I went to the 50s, I could just be, like, a t-shirt maker. She's a really good gal. Millions right there. If I there you go. You're, you're set for life. Elvis yep. broke records with his single "Hubba Hubba Honka Honka." <laughs> yeah. yeah, like literally, dude. This is like back then. T-shirts didn't have pictures on them. Yeah. Great. In fact, in the 1950s, tees were considered underwear. And wearing them plain as a shirt to school could get you sent home. Dang, what? Where's your collar? You're wearing panties I on your chest. I can see. <laughs> Ed left Crozier and Kelly to open his own shop in 1959. This is when he began advertising his shirts as Weirdo, a branding that has stuck with his styles over the decades. He also continued with his custom paintwork. But most importantly, this is when he branched out to the custom build work that made him into legend. And that was when Ed's life changed. A rat driving a car jumped out and bit him in the toe. Whoa. In 1939, a big rat jumped out and bit his toe. <laughs> He goes, you think? <laughs> what do you think? You think I'm not going to stop on you? You think I'm not going to stop on you? <laughs> What's that rat think? <laughs> All right. The, uh, <laughs> the Little Jewel, a 1930 Ford Model A Tudor, was Ed's first foray into the show car scene. The name Little Jewel was inspired by Dwayne Steck, who named his radical custom 1954 Chevy Bel Air sports coupe Moonglow. Moonglow had an incredible impact on builders at the time, and it remains one of the most famous customs of the 1950s. Ed restyled his car by swapping the original grill for a 1932 grill and had Nerf bars with small accessory turn lights that he made himself at his shop. This what is are pretty... Nerf uh, pretty- Tame. Yeah. It's a pretty tame custom job. The Little Jewel was painted in red enamel and featured a white uh, Naga hide top with white running boards. The interior was upholstered in black and white. He chromed the undercarriage and replaced the engine himself with one from a 1950 Oldsmobile. Hell yeah. I think probably. It's so low. How is anyone going to see all that chrome down there? The idea for a fiberglass car started swirling in Ed's brain after seeing a photo of Henry Ford swinging a sledgehammer on the fiberglass deck lid of a 1941 Ford. He was intrigued by the photo caption, which claimed fiberglass wouldn't dent. Yeah, it won't dent, but it'll break. Crack, yeah. It'll crack. Later, at the Huntington Beach Pier, he was introduced to the material when he met a surfer 
whose wooden board was covered with a waterproof fiberglass covering. Around this time, Ed read a Life magazine profile of the Shadoff Special, a Bonneville streamliner that hot rodder W.R. Shadoff built out of fiberglass. It's all coming together. Shut it's all off. it's all fiberglass. <laughs> He's gonna get itchy being yeah. covered in so much fiberglass. Mm-hmm. Ed was the first hot rodder to branch off from the traditional chopped and channeled tea bucket style that was standard in the community. Chopping and channeling was a process of cutting away and refitting sections of a car's metal body to create different profiles and sizes than what you could buy off the lot. You you cut the the pillars, make them lower, make the roof line lower, pretty cool. And then channeling is when you actually cut. Uh, holes in the like the body itself, and uh, it lays lower on the chassis. It's all about getting getting low. There's What's, high boys and there's low boys. Low boys are channeled. Yeah. High boys they just sit on top of the 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 frame rails there. What's tubbing? Tubbing is when you make the uh, like the the tire. Uh, What's the term? What am I? The wheel wells. The wheel wells. Thank you, James. When you make the wheel wells big, bigger, so you can put bigger tires on there. Yeah. Uh, so if you look in like the back of a drag car or the front of a drift car, yeah, there's yeah, a big sheet metal, like like, yeah. uh, like a side of a trailer. Oh, yeah. Trailer okay. fenders. Yes. Um, my dog's got long toenails. She went crazy. She cut up all my pillars. Oh my bed. <laughs> 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 Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Been waiting to say that for minutes. That's right. <laughs> While these were still unique styles, there was a limit to how different these cars could be. But with fiberglass, a material that was inexpensive and easy to shape, Ed was able to sculpt entirely original, daring designs never before seen on cars. He made the bold curves, swoops, and dips of his creations by fashioning the car body entirely out of plaster and wood, which then became the female mold he used to shape the fiberglass, basically like the... The mold. The, the mold. Well... Yeah, well, yeah. It's over the top of it, though. It's like a mannequin for a car. Yeah, the proof or something. Oh, that's why he liked it so much. Yeah, yeah. he loves mannequins. I could put so many eyes on this. <laughs> <laughs> when Ed You built- think I'm not going to put eyes on this? <laughs> When Ed built the outlaw, he stole How parts- can I tell if it's lying if I don't put eyes on it? <laughs> Ed Roth, the outlaw. When Ed built the outlaw, he stole parts from every junkyard in Southern California. This gorgeous Frankenstein car was made up of a modified 55 Cadillac V8 engine, the rear end of a 48 Ford. It had 58 Chevy taillights, a windshield from a 27 Dodge, wow. headlights, Joe, from a 59 Rambler. It had motorcycle wheels up front. It had a custom chrome chassis and sported the first ever all fiberglass body on a custom car with a dreamy white and ice blue paint job. Dude, if, junkyard uh, dogs must have hated this yeah. guy. Or maybe he, they loved him because he brought treats. Uh, yeah, big old yeah. steaks. My steak budget's out of control. <laughs> uh, if you have ever read Hot Rod Magazine, you probably know what this car looks like. It's got like... Uh, yeah, close your eyes and think of a hot rod. Yeah, it's this, it's this basically. One. Not quite a race car or a hot rod. The Outlaw lived up to its title and shook up the custom car scene. Custom with a K. In regards to this groundbreaking moment, automotive historian Ken Gross said it best. Quote, I was, not- <laughs> <laughs> I was very much a futurist. <laughs> he really was ahead of his time in his materials, concepts, and the breadth of his imagination. Finished in late 1959, The Outlaw was major fodder for car shows and magazines, just as Roth had expected. Car show organizers paid Ed to display The Outlaw, which brought droves of customers to his booth. Droves! 
Fans were hungry for his airbrushed T-shirts, and they wanted their own fierce custom jobs. This rabid popularity caught the attention of model kit makers Revel, and soon a lucrative business partnership was struck between them. That's 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 tight. the money maker right there is the toys. Oh yeah. Revel's publicist Henry Blankford conjured the nickname Big Daddy for Ed. It acted as both a nod to the term Daddy O, a uh, popular beatnik vernacular of the time, and the fact that Ed was 6'4 and weighed 240 pounds. He's a big guy. That's big. That's He's a like big daddy. Uh, Fetterman level. <laughs> yeah. Blankford is also widely credited with attempting to clean up Ed's image by outfitting him in what became his trademark look a tuxedo and a top hat. However, according to a uh, November 1963 Esquire essay on custom culture written by Tom Wolfe, when Revel demanded Ed spruce up, he sardonically outfitted himself in the $215 getup and wore it to every car show. <laughs> the look comprised of, quote, full set of tails, silk hat, boiled shirt, cufflinks, studs, and a monocle. What's boiled a boiled shirt? <laughs> What does that mean? I have no idea, but it sounds expensive. I think you boil it. You boil the shirt. And that makes it We technically boil all of our shirts when we put them in the washing machine. I guess so. I don't. I wash everything on cold. Oh. I like to use energy, so I do it on hot. (laughs) How dirty do you get? So dirty. So dirty. That's that's why all your shirts shrink. Oh, it just means that the front was starched. Oh, that's kind of weird. How did Revel take this new over-the-top look? Wolf quoted Ed as saying... I bow and kiss all the girls' hands. The Revel guys get pretty teed off about that. But what can I say? (laughs) I'm a perfect gentleman. (laughs) 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 Through the early 1960s, Ed whipped up another brazen beauty every year. The bubble top beatnik bandit in 1961 is this the one in the peterson i think, I think we so, have yeah. seen that in the oh, peterson no it's a different one. Oh, uh yeah so the beatnik bandit was released as one of the first hot wheels uh, in 1968 i bet that thing is worth a hundred yeah he made the quote hovercraft rotar in 1962 we don't say that word anymore <laughs> uh there is also the twin engine mysterion in 1963 love that name there is the Corvair-powered road agent in early 64 and the asymmetrical Orbitron in late 64. I love the Orbitron. Oh, the road agent. I tell you what, you drive any of these cars in South California in the summer, you will die. You will die. <laughs> uh, they all have, like, bubble tops. Have, whoa. Then there's the board-toting Surflight in 65. And finally, the ornate Druid Princess. The Druid Princess in is late my style. This is rules, that dude. is, it's like a carriage. It's like Cinderella carriage, carriage with I, a freaking. I've seen that. Car this is what I would drive, guys. <laughs> this is like if a car was made from. It's got a baby coffin it's on the back. <laughs> oh God! I'm fairly certain I've seen that in person, uh, sir. Uh, why are you buying so many baby coffins? <laughs> I make cars. <laughs> Checks out. Though his model car contract was profitable, Ed's t-shirt sales were booming. Commercially aberrant designs that kids liked and parents didn't were most successful as long as they weren't offensive enough to be banned by mom and dad, which is what we're trying to do at Donut. It feels dangerous, but it's not. It's like Beavis and Butthead. And Bart Simpson. 
His own kids inspired his grotesque caricatures. Figures with bulging bloodshot eyes and gaping mouths filled with needle-sharp teeth. Dude, you got to take better care of your kids. Yeah, man. That's what they look like. (laughs) My kids' teeth are sharp. I need this raise. (laughs) His most popular and sustaining characters are Mother's Worry, Dragnut, and Mr. Gasser. You okay? Yep. (laughs) Nolan just puked. I choked a little bit. On Dragnut. Dragnut. <laughs> oh, I know this guy. Dragnut. It's not a motorcycle. He's like a zombie guy. He's a zombie guy. Dragnut. Oh, that guy. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That guy's Well, cool. he's got that goatee that you were talking about. Yeah. That you want. Yeah, I want that sharp teeth. Yeah. Sharp tongue. Goatee. I got two <laughs> out of three. They're like Brett Michaels. <laughs> My style icon. <laughs> Dragnut. Or no, sorry, Billy Ray Cyrus. That has guy, that. like, there's Dragnet, and then Ed Roth is on the box for the model. I know. Cake. What? He's got a big cake. <laughs> yeah, he's got a big old dumpy. He's got a Fetterman donkey. <laughs> yeah. Ed, Ed Roth walks into the room, his dumpy comes in five minutes later. <laughs> uh, mother's worry. Damn, look at that thing. Dude, I want these toys now. Dude, cake, 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 Ed Roth. (laughs) (laughs) We'll get back to more past guests, but right now, a word from our sponsors. But 1963, Ed developed a character he is best known for today. Rat Rat Fink. Really blew it. The first time you've ever read it. Yeah, I blew it. I blew it. The whole time leading up to this. 35 minutes in. Like leading up to this moment, I freaking dropped the ball. Don't give him another take so they have to use it. Or just RF. Rat Fink. I just, I knew. Typically drawn in an RF t-shirt, behind the wheel of a revved up vehicle, or engaged in mischief. I love mischief. Good, some some This degenerate funhouse mirror counterpart to Mickey Mouse was another way Ed used his designs to challenge the establishment and the commercialization of art. He attributed the name to comedian Steve Allen. Uh, who used the phrase Rat Fink frequently, but low-key, all the kids knew that the F in RF actually stood for fuck. Oh! Don't bleep that, Gavin. That's the one we get. It's in context. It's PG-13. It's in context. Yeah. Uh, Steve Allen, he's a Satanist. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. Maybe not. There's a Steve Allen theater in Los Angeles that I used to perform at a lot. Okay. And that's where, like, the Los Angeles Satanists. Oh, I see. It was, like, the Steve Allen Theater and Center for Enlightenment. Gotcha. So he was into, like, transcendentalism and all kinds of, like, thought things. Cool. Yeah. Interesting. Rat Fink debuted as an ad in a car magazine in 1963 and immediately exploded in popularity. This reckless rodent. <laughs> that's how I have to read alliteration. This reckless rodent could be found on T-shirts, keychains, decals, 
and soon became synonymous with custom culture with a K. Even Revel, who had spent so much time clutching their pearls over Ed's decency, made three-dimensional plastic kits of Rat Fink and his other monsters as well. Yeah. I want one of these. I want a freaking rat fink. No, being caked yeah. up rat fink. In my house. <laughs> being caked up rat fink. Just a big ass on that. I rat. want a mold of Ed Roth's tuchus. <laughs> <laughs> when writing about the enduring charm of rat fink, Lethal Threat, a modern apparel brand inspired by hot rod culture and Ed's work, swoons. No matter how feral Rat Fink's design appears, the satirical edge of Ross's intent is always there to serve as a self-reflective wink, creating a sense of solace for the counterculture without ever pandering to a wider market. Other artists associated with Ed also drew the character, including Rat Fink comics artist R.K. Sloan and Steve Fiorilla, who illustrated Ross's catalogs. Rat Fink was still a fixture in 80s and 90s sub and pop culture, even as Ed wound down the designing phase of his life. Ed drew Rat Fink artwork for the album Junkyard by Australian band The Birthday Party. That's a cool name for a band. White yeah. Zombie produced a song titled Rat Fink's Suicide Tanks and Cannibal Girls. Yeah, <laughs> which was featured in Beavis and Butthead Do America, which is an amazing movie. I'm not even joking at all. No, and so you're, you're getting it confused with Scat Fink. <laughs> uh, Beavis and Butthead Do America also had an animated sequence reminiscent of Ed's artistic This is style. the best part of the movie. Yeah. IMO. Homages to his work can be found in band art from the Voodoo Glow Skulls. Yes. Cool. The Cramps. Cool. And Rob Zombie. Zombie win the wife. Yeah, got a goth girlfriend. She likes hot rods. She and she's Frankenstein. Boom, 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 boom. Riding in Frankenstein's Cadillac. And my wife is a Frankenstein and zombie in the window. I'm a Dracula. I love my Frankenstein wife. He rules, dude. You can even find a rap thing poster. On one of the set walls of the Pee Wee Herman show. Oh, nice. Oh. By the late 60s, Ed's deal with Rebel ended and he began associating with the Hells Angels. Oh. This inspired a pivot to designing motorcycles. Mm. I think it's get, it's getting a little... It's getting a little close might, to Nazi. Yeah. Not that... <laughs> don't, don't kill us. No, don't kill us. He built an asymmetrical Buick V6-powered bike hauler he called... Captain Peppy's motorcycle and Zeppelin repair. <laughs> I love his name. Sick. This thing's Whoa! Sick. Yo! Cool. That thing's rad. This looks like something that Max would make me drive. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we all rented them through for the weekend. You gotta drive it. You have hey James, you have to drive this thing. <laughs> yeah, we the owner says it's actually killed like it's, five yeah, previous owners. Five. We don't really have a hook for the video, but we're assuming that you'll almost die, and that'll be the cold open. Yeah. <laughs> he then started to work on a series of choppers and the first Volkswagen-powered trikes. Mm. In 1967, he invested all of his money into launching his own black and white motorcycle magazine, Choppers. 
when mainstream motorcycle publications wouldn't feature his creations. Hmm. It's too crazy for motorcycle bikes. Wow. Gross. <laughs> <laughs> it was the first custom with a K bike publication and famously featured more of the outrageous designs Roth had become known for. Plus, the early work of painter David Mann, hmm. who's renowned for his realistic images of motorcycle culture. According to the LA Times, the more, quote, respectable hot rod magazines refused to carry advertising for choppers. And by 1970, Roth lost both the magazine and his wife, oh, no. who, who divorced him and moved a few down south. <laughs> he was, quote, forced to sell his collection of custom cars to stay afloat. Fifteen vehicles of which he received a total of fifty five hundred bucks. Oh man, God. those are probably Ooh. worth fifty five million. Fifty five million bajillion, Dang, dude. at least. Despite its ultimate negative impact on Ed's life, Choppers inspired the publication of Easy Riders magazine, which opened its doors in 1971. In 2018, former Easy Riders employees banded together and brought Choppers back from the dead with permission from Roth's sons. Uh, Choppers and Easy Riders are both still in publication as of this recording, although they're probably written by AI now. <laughs> Ed then started working with Tim Brucker. Jim. Jim. Sure. That is that's your opinion. That's that's your opinion. That is. Ed then started working with Jim Brucker, a serious antique kitsch and prop collector slash renter. Together they built the sets for the Buena Park attraction movie world, Cars of the Stars. Huh. Here several of Roth's cars were on display until the museum closed in nineteen seventy nine. Ed's life had spun out of control somewhat after losing his family, cars, and magazine. He remarried several times before shunning the rebellious characters he created and converting to Mormonism. Wow. Whoa. Hard left. Yeah. Uh-huh. He also took a job at Knott's Berry Farm as a sign painter, menu designer, and artist under the pseudonym Bernie Schwartz. Bernie Schwartz, Whoa. the Mormon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Just yep. a Mormon guy Just named Mormon Bernie Schwartz. Bernie Schwartz. <laughs> By the 1990s, he began appearing at car shows across the country and even started working on some new design ideas with his son, Daryl. His fourth and final marriage was to Eileen Brotherson. <laughs> Brother, son. No. I know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> a Mormon woman with two daughters. Who he remained devoted to until his death at age 69. Nice. So, Roth, on April 4th, 2001. Dang. Uh, Damn, dude. Brother son is the most Mormon last name I've yeah. ever heard. <laughs> Brother son. Evan, sister wife. <laughs> to this day, Roth's accomplishments are celebrated annually at the Rat Fink reunion. These events are hosted by his wife in Manti, Utah, where they were living when he passed. Enthusiasts pour in from around the world every year to frolic in honor of Ed. <laughs> All right, boys, be. let's frolic. Let's frolic. <laughs> My wife is a zombie. Anyway. <laughs> that must be such a like weird gathering. I want to go. I am very intrigued, actually. Yeah. Maybe there's like fans of it. Like, does he have like strong Mormon fans? Or like, I like his stuff. His later work. Yeah, I oh, like yeah. his Knott's Berry work. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like the menus from Knott's Berry Farm. Yeah. Thank you. And then you got guys that are like, yeah, 
Uh, <laughs> <yeah>. Rob Zombie. <laughs> I bet he's got lots of like German fans. <laughs> we like und uh, rat fink. I like a rat fink I and like tragnot. It's like a big rat. <laughs> tragnot. It's hard to. Uh, there's a fine line between German guy and uh, Fred Durst. Oh. <laughs> Dragnut. Dragnut. <laughs> I never wow. thought of that. Huh. Yeah. Oh, wow. Uh, Durst seems like it's a German. Oh, Durst. Frederick Durst. Frederick Durst. Bernie Schwartz. Bernie Schwartz. <laughs> yeah. The Mormon. <laughs> I'm Bernie Schwartz, the Mormon sign painter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, Ed's work showed the world that anyone with imagination and determination could design and build a car. You don't have to be a certified automotive engineer or work within the industry. You can make a big old hairy, stinky rat. <laughs> Again, Ken Gross sums up the importance of his work beautifully. Quote, I think Ed was a visionary. He was rebellious in a fun way, and he kind of nailed it before anybody else did. Everything Ed did had a whimsical side. He had a great imagination. And he saw the fun side of hot rodding that nobody else had. Ed remains a beloved and iconic figure among car enthusiasts more oatmeal, please? <laughs> and artists alike. His innovative car designs define the Southern California hot rod scene and continue to influence custom with a K culture today. Likewise, his playfully atrocious monster caricatures like Rat Finked turned him into a pop art iconoclast. As Big Daddy himself once said, Money comes and goes, but Rad Fink is forever. <laughs> <laughs> That's how I, they talk in the 50s. I That's, feel like this same formula has been reused over the years, like Garbage Pail Kids. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And then uh, like in the early 2000s when everyone was wearing the, like the SpongeBob with gold yeah. teeth oh, yeah. holding money. Like yeah, stuff. or like Taz and Bugs dressed like Crisscross. <laughs> yeah. yeah, That's a real shirt that I own. <laughs> yep. It is. <laughs> that's a real shirt that I own. That's a real but shirt that I own. Even like... like Dude, when... We should start a podcast called That's a Real Shirt That I Own. And just <laughs> talk about our shirts. Yeah. <laughs> There's like an improv game where you make a shirt. Really? There? I don't know. But we could have other people on and talk about their shirts. Yeah. Hey, what shirt are you wearing today? And they take off their um, boiled shirt and a <laughs> t-shirt underneath. Yeah. Dude, Ed Roth, what a guy. Yeah. What a guy. I love anyone who, like, you know, needles society. Yeah. This is from the New York Times. It's a Sunday opinion piece Oh, that called, rag. It's called The Long Strange Tale of California's Surf Nazis. Oh, surf Nazis must die. Yes. So as a quote, uh, as a passionate student of surf culture and history, though, I've also seen a lot more swastikas. The first commercially made surfboards sold in California in the 1930s had swastikas burned into their tails and were marketed as the swastika model by Pacific Systems Home of Los Angeles. Quote, in the 1959 edition of Surf for Surf, <laughs> The Search for Surf, a series of surf movies by Greg Knoll included Californian surfers in Nazi stormtrooper uniforms riding Ugh. flexa flyers in a storm drain while friends held up a Third Reich flag. Yikes. Yeah. Ed Roth, the artist and custom car visionary known as Big Daddy, sold plastic Nazi stormtrooper helmets to surfers in the mid-1960s and told Time Magazine, 60s, quote, that's too late. Told Time Magazine, quote, 
that Hitler really did a hell of a public relations job for me. No. End quote. I mean, that's pretty rough. That's pretty that's bad. Pretty that's bad. in the 60s. Oh, right. Yeah, let's yeah. listen to some listener mail. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, past gas team. Uh, love the show. I hope you all are excited to be back to work after a long holiday season of sucking on chili dogs you know and staring it. at Mario Andretti's underpants. Uh, that only happened once, and it was only me. So these guys have not seen Mario Andretti in his underpants. And I think it's not just yet. me and his wife. Yeah, not yet. Nice. Yeah. Have you ever watched old film of race finishes where some lunatic runs out on the track and waves the checkered flag practically in the faces of the drivers as they go uh -huh, by? Okay. Now they're standing in Rapunzel's tower, 90 feet above the track. Nice ref. Waving, or if you're Tim Cook at the 2022 USA Grand Prix in Austin, holding the checkered flag over the track. Yeah, it wasn't a very good wave. It yeah. wasn't a good wave, but Tom Holland, great I'm wave at great Monaco. Wave. Any idea when they stop this ill-advised practice and whether or not some awful incident is associated with it? God, I hope not. <laughs> but something tells me, as with many safety practices in motor racing, it had to start. With a tragedy. You know what? That Keep it juiced, Wink Wink Nation. Chris from Massachusetts. <laughs> That's a great question, Chris. I think we could maybe add that to uh, one of our upcoming grab bag episodes. That yeah, sounds like sure. a nice little piece of history to include. Uh, hopefully it's not super tragic, but I think we're going to try to get that in. We're going to try to answer that for you. So yeah. stay tuned, Chris. Thank you so much for your email. If you'd like to get in touch, unless you guys have anything else to add. No, that's it. All right. I just want to say maybe listen out for that. In the 200th episode, yeah, which is going to be coming up because this is 192. Yeah, 192. it's going to be momentous. So we're gonna we're gonna look into that for you because I'm curious as well. Hopefully, someone didn't get like disintegrated by a by a wing or something. Yeah, hopefully know? not. Yeah, hopefully not. But but probably. Like, but probably, yeah. like you said. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with the show, hit us up at passgaspodcast at donutmedia.com, and maybe we'll read it on air. Or maybe not. Yeah, maybe not. Really maybe not. We don't owe you anything. <laughs> yeah, we don't owe you anything. Uh, <laughs> if you'd like to follow the boys, uh, hit them up. Or follow don't hit the them boys. up. Follow the boys. Follow the boys. Follow the boys. On social media, <laughs> at James Pumphrey, at Joji Weber. Follow me, at Nolan J. Sykes, if you'd like. Uh, big thank you to our uh, amazing team, as always. We've got Christina Felsky, Gavin Kinzel, and Nick Giamuso on the cameras. Yeah, and big thanks to our writer this week, Luce Tomlin Brenner. Yeah, and uh, our guest uh, Scat Fink. Yeah, Scat Fink and Rob Zombie. Thank you most <laughs> of all. All right, we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. Bye.